All right. Good morning, everybody. It's time to start Bible class because if we don't, we won't have time to do any discussion. So I got to get jump jump right into it. Um, our text this morning is going to be from Galatians chapter four, and we'll start in verse twenty-one. Galatians chapter four, starting in verse twenty-one. What we'll do is go ahead and read through our passage, then we'll pray, and uh, then I want to give an introduction in order to kind of get things uh, rolling with our passage. So Galatians chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who were not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, And so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we ask your blessings on us this morning as we go through your word. We ask your blessings upon our hearts and our minds and upon my lips, Lord, and our ears as we listen. Lord, please bless us with, um, with understanding. Please guide our hearts and our minds so that we may soak up the things that you want us to know, especially this wonderful truth of freedom found in Christ Jesus, your Son. And we ask, Lord, that, uh, that you would bless this time as we study this, and then as we discuss it, and then as we proceed into worship, may our hearts be tuned to the worship and praise of you. We praise you, Lord, for who you are, and we praise you for your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, I wanted to encourage you once again to remember uh, Bob Plasio's challenge to us. Try, if you can, to uh, sit down and in one reading each week, read through the book of Galatians. I admit it, I haven't been great about it. But it definitely does help with uh, understanding just how the the book kind of progresses. And as we go through from chapter to chapter and there's a week in between, it's very important for us to to remember where we were before. So, And speaking of the Palacios, please pray for them. Uh, he, uh, Bob was actually going to be teaching today, but uh, they had to make an unexpected trip. And so pray pray for their safety as they're on it. Now, last time I had the opportunity to teach, we looked at uh, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, and in in it, Paul actually showed two metaphors for the law. The first one was the prison, law as a prison, and then the second was the law as a pedagogue or as a tutor leading us to Christ. 
Um, and today we get another metaphor. He even calls it an allegory here. And, um, and so what I want to do, this is in this allegory, by the way, is a comparison between the bondwoman or the son of the bondwoman and the son of the free woman. And so what I want to do is I want to rehash. Yes, it's going to be review for, for you guys. You've probably read these stories a uh, hundred times in Genesis. But I want to go back to the other G book in the Bible, Genesis, and actually kind of go through a few chapters and rehash the story of Abraham, um, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. Because what we have here is a very clear metaphor for what the law was intended to do in bringing us to Christ, how the law enslaves those who are under it, and how Christ actually brings about freedom, as we saw in our passage. So the story all starts, if you want to go back, you can go to um, Genesis chapter 11, and that's kind of where it begins. I'm only going to be kind of touching at different points, but if you want to follow along, feel free from chapter to chapter, and you may pick up some other nuggets that I don't mention. But after the flood comes Babel, and after Babel, and God confusing the languages, people begin actually dispersing throughout the area. And then city-states start to develop. And one of these city-states, one of these great city-states that, that rises up in Mesopotamia is a city-state called Ur. And Ur was actually a holy city to one of the Babylonian gods, the moon god Sin. And Sin, yes, Sin, that's right, good name, right? Worshipping him with Sin. That's actually his name as well. Um, in this... Uh, in this city, and probably serving this moon god Sin, was a man named Terah who had three sons. One of them was named Abram. And we find in chapter 11, verse 26, I believe, that uh, Terah and um, Abram and Nahor, another one of Terah's sons, end up starting to make the move um, up north along the Euphrates. We're not really told why. We are told in Acts chapter 7, though, when Stephen gets up and he's giving his defense and he preaches a sermon, that sure enough, Abram had actually received a call from God while he was in Mesopotamia, while he was in Ur. That's in uh, chapter 7, verse two, verses 2 and 3 of Acts. And so Terah goes along with him. They go up from Ur into Haran following the river, which is a much better route into the Canaan rather than going across the desert directly. And it also makes sense, too, because Haran, the city of Haran, was also a holy city to the moon god Sin. So it just kind of made sense then for these people to do that. Terah then dies there, and Abram takes his nephew Lot and heads down into Canaan. And what's interesting about this is what we see immediately with the story of Abram is Genesis, in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, actually 1, 2, and 3, is we see the command from the Lord to go, and then we see a promise given to Abram. God says in verse 2 of chapter 12, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then the good words continue for, uh, for, for Abram as we continue on. We see the story of Abram and Lot, them parting ways, them, and then Lot getting captured, and Abram going in pursuit, and having a big, huge war against all of these kings and the plunderer, which included Lot, and Abram rescues him and brings back all of the plunder to the area, 
and then gives it to the priest king Melchizedek in chapter 14. Melchizedek is mentioned again, as we know, in Hebrews 7, right? And though the blessings from... Oh, and, and then God actually blesses Abram again by providing him a blessing through the lips of this king priest, which is Melchizedek. And though the blessings from God have been stated multiple times now to Abram, it's not until really chapter 15 that we get something really special about them. Because in chapter 15... As Abram kind of pleads with God, hey, look, you've promised to make me a great nation, and yet I don't have any children. How is this going to work out? You can almost see the desperation. He's getting older. He knows his time is winding down, running out for actually being able to father a son, and he pleads with God. And what does God do? He then, instead of just promising, he, he actually... It's interesting, it's almost as if um, God is saying, yes, I understand. I understand you're having a hard time. So let me deepen this promise. Let me make it a covenant. And so he tells Abram what to do. He says, go and take a heifer, go and take a goat, go and take a, a, um, a ram and two birds, kill them, the heifer, the goat, and the ram, split them in half, tear them apart, put them opposite one another, and in between there'd be this huge lane of blood and gore. And this was actually something that was very common for covenants of the day because what they would do is each party then in the covenant would stand back to back and one would lead the other one through this lane of blood and gore in order to express their part of the covenant. And then the other one would lead the other through and they would express their part of the covenant so that it sealed the covenant between them, the, the contract between them, by the blood that would get on the hem of their garments and stain them, sealing this covenant fully. But that was between equals. We're not talking about equals here with God and Abram. And so after Abram does what God says and splits the animals and does this bloody mess, God then puts Abram into a sleep so that he's not able to go through. And Abram dreams of a smoking oven and a pot, a smoking pot going through. Symbols of God's um, presence going through in between the, the pieces and expressing to Abram the covenant that he will do. That yes, he will indeed make of him a great nation because he is God most high. That's what we see in 15. Abram actually understanding finally this is a unilateral promise this isn't a contract this isn't a covenant where you have to keep apart and i keep apart no god said i promised you now here's a covenant let me show you and it's not unilateral because they're not equals in spite of this visual guarantee though we see in the very next chapter chapter 16 sarai and abram taking their uh, taking it on themselves to actually fulfill this promise. Abram's getting up there in age, obviously. Sarai's getting up there in age. So Sarai says, hey, take this Egyptian slave woman that I've got, Hagar, have a baby with her, we'll call it mine. That's how we'll actually fix this promise from God that we haven't received. And the thinking was that, sure enough, Hagar would give birth to a son and would be treat, it would be treated as Sarai's, but... 
Abram goes along with it, and sure enough, Hagar conceives, and what happens? Hagar then looks down on Sarai. Contemptuous is the word that's used in chapter 16. And Sarai, unable to handle the disrespect from the uppity slave, then goes to Abram for help. And Abram tells her in Genesis 16.6, your maid is in your hands. Do to her what is good in your sight. And so Sarai treats her so poorly that Hagar basically runs for her life out into the desert. But God appears to her there, turns her back. She goes back, and sure enough, uh, and she's guaranteed, hey, a son will arise, will grow up from this. And Ishmael is born when Abram is 86 years old. And then in Genesis 17, what we get, 13 years later, when Abram is 99 years old, and you'll notice it's when Ishmael is 13, right? 13 years after Ishmael has come. Then all of a sudden, God visits Abram again and gives him a promise again. But this time, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's actually accompanied by two things. A name change as Abram, which means exalted father, goes to, be, uh, to become Abraham, meaning uh, father of multitudes. And not just a name change, but also circumcision. This is where circumcision is introduced. And regarding circumcision, this is associated with reproduction, as we know. It is important to remember that circumcision was a reminder of the sin passed on from father to son. Just in the very act of reproducing, what we're doing is we're passing on sin from Adam, father to son, father to son, father to son. And so by performing circumcision, the descendants of Abraham were people who were to be known, to be set apart for a holy purpose. This is sanctification of an entire people, that God has a plan for them, and he's already stated what it is, because the promise is that all the families of the world will be blessed through you. And so the setting apart is in order to bring that about. And because this circumcision took place after Ishmael and before Isaac, we see that there's a key thing to know about Genesis 17, that God has in mind his own timing, his own purposes, his own glory. And no matter what man does in order to bring about at the time that man thinks is right, for carrying out out God's promise, God has a plan in place. And what we get is a wonderful thing in Genesis 21-2, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, where all of a sudden Isaac is born at the appointed time. At the appointed time. We kind of get the same idea of when Jesus was born, um, when at what is it, in the fullness of time, or um, man, I'm drawing a blank there. But this is Isaac in God's time rather than Ishmael in Abram and Sarai's time, right? It's done for the purposes of his glory and his, uh, his purposes. After all, as John the Baptist says to the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 8, and 9, God can raise up children of Abraham from the rocks lying on the side of the street. So it's not as if Abraham has to do something or Sarai has to do, Sarah has to do something or Hagar. No, it's about God and his timing and what he's doing is he's showing that he's in charge. In Genesis 18, Abraham is then visited 
by none other than God himself, Jesus in pre-incarnate form, coming and telling him that within a year he will have a son, the promised son, the one that's been highly um, expected. And sure enough, Isaac soon arrives. And once again, as I said in Genesis 21-2, at the appointed time, but conflict then arises between Sarah and Hagar again. Why? And this is really key for our passage today. Because Ishmael begins mocking Isaac. And Sarah says to Abram in chapter 21, verse 10, she says, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Abraham then goes before God and prays, what should I do? God gives him a guarantee of safety for the boy. And so Abraham turns out the Ishmael and his mother with nothing more than some bread and some water. And so we see in this horrible drama the effects of the work of man in the place of God. Sarah and Abraham attempting to work in their time the promises which God had given and would surely keep introduced into the world what God himself describes as, and this is in uh, Genesis 16:12, a wild donkey of a man whose hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And conflict and killing and jealousy and anger are still around between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac as we know. The Ishmaelites being the Arabs filling the area and knowing that uh, their hand is against everyone and everyone's hand is against them. Now this is in fleshly terms, certainly, but it's also in spiritual terms too. As when humans apply their humanity to religion, they merely pervert the truth. It is only through Christ Jesus that there is truly neither Jew nor Gentile, nor we may say Arab, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, right? That's Galatians 3.28. And so it is to this spiritual application which Paul turns in Galatians chapter 4 in our passage today. So go ahead and turn back there and we'll get into our passage right away. Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And I love how this starts out right away because it's dripping with sarcasm, isn't it? He's, Paul's almost saying to them, are you sure that you have thought about the implications of what you are doing by going back to the law? Have you really thought this through? When you read the law, have you really paid attention to it? There's stuff in there that you cannot keep. He's very clear about it. After all, in Acts 15, a place where Paul was, right? The apostles all gathered together and they're talking about whether to hold the Gentiles accountable to some of the Judaizing teaching. And what do they say? We're not going to place on the neck of the Gentiles a yoke which we and our fathers were not able to bear. And so that's what Paul is saying here too in sarcasm, with sarcastic tones. Have you really paid attention to this? You who want to be under the law, do you not listen to it? And so we get to the meat of the text for today, and I want to kind of treat the next few verses with that in mind. This is, it was sarcasm, and now Paul is going to express to us why that sarcasm must be so deep. What are you wanting to go back to? That's the question that's hanging in the air 
as we get to verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, I want to treat this all as one big chunk. And so what I tried to do is, if you have the discussion questions in front of you, you'll notice that I put on there a diagram as well. The diagram hopefully will break down kind of the differences between the two. The son of the bondwoman versus the son of the free woman. And what I want to hopefully express is the key, the key implications there, and you know, you'll know those as well. But follow along with me, or um, if you want, draw a line down the middle of your paper, and you can write stuff uh, if you're taking notes, bullet notes, as to what is different between them. But it starts off immediately with verse 22. The first thing to note is that both are, sons of, um, are actually sons of Abraham. Ishmael is the son of Abraham through Hagar. Isaac is the son of Abraham through Sarah. So what's the difference? I mean, they're both the same blood, aren't they? No, because it's not about the flesh. It's about the promise, as we see in verse 23. There's a big difference there in 23. 23 says, but the son by the bondwoman who was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise So there's a difference there. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Isaac according to the promise. Notice though that they're not named in this verse. It doesn't say that Ishmael was born according to the flesh and Isaac was born according to the promise. It says rather that the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Why? Because the the thing that Paul is trying to get across here is not about Ishmael and Isaac so much as it is between the flesh and and the promise. That's the key. This is important because it shows too why Paul is making this allegory. He wants to express that slavery and freedom are in juxtaposition to one another. And that he wants to show that one way leads to promise, which would be right that I'll, I'll try and keep this the freedom and the promise side, and this will be the slavery side, okay? He wants to show that one way leads to promise while the other way leads back to slavery. Back to slavery. And I say back because he calls them brethren here, right? Brethren twice in this passage, as he does in chapter 4, verse 12, which Adam mentioned last week. He's expressing to his brothers in Christ, don't go back to this, this slavery. Don't go back to the law. Now notice that Paul himself calls this whole conversation an allegory. He says this in verse 24. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. 
And that actually is just a transliteration of the Greek word. The Greek word is allegoreo. And yes, it does mean to speak allegorically. And what's interesting is uh, the NAS, the ESV, I checked uh, the New Revised Standard and also the KJV all say the same thing. They transliterate the word, allegorically speaking. Uh, the NIV says something like figurative. Something like, I think that was the only one I really found that was different. But um, John MacArthur actually says that, uh, he, he kind of says that the translators did us a, a disfavor in this case by calling it allegory. Because an allegory tends to bring to mind the idea of using a story of fiction in order to express a truth, something true. And this isn't a story of fiction, is it? So, in fact, I can give an example of a true allegory. G.K. Chesterton says that uh, in the story of the beauty and the beast, we learn the truth that someone, someone has to be loved before they're lovable. I love that. But the beauty and the beast, that's not a true story, is it? What's true is the lesson we can pull from it, that someone has to be loved before they're lovable. I love that, and I think it expresses it perfectly. But here we're talking about true people in history. Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Hagar, Sarah. They're people who lived and the story happened. Therefore, this isn't allegory so much as it is analogy or similitude. That's actually what we're getting here. So, analogically speaking, that's almost how this should be rendered. And this is important because the truth... Uh, the physical truth, the historical truth, then expresses to us an even better true truth, <laughs> spiritual truth. And that's important for us as we continue on. So in verse 24, we see too that these two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. And then the other, as we get into verse 25, uh, actually, no, not 25. It goes a little bit later. So we'll stop there for a second. 20, uh, in 24, this is Hagar, the covenant that, is, that, um, uh, that corresponds to her. It proceeds from Mount Sinai and even specifies in Arabia. And I've always wondered about that. Why Arabia? Is that actually where Mount Sinai is? Is it not on the Sinai Peninsula? It really doesn't matter. We know that the Arabs live there <laughs> and they're descendants of Ishmael. He's pointing this out. But what he also does is he then ties it in verse 25 to the present Jerusalem. So this Hagar corresponds to the Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds also to the present Jerusalem in juxtaposition to the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem. And the descendants of Ishmael settled and stayed and made their home in the place where the law was given. That's the expression here. The descendants of Isaac actually move on to Jerusalem and keep their eyes fixed on the promise, right? The promise that will come. In fact, we do the same thing. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. We have citizenship in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3.20. Citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're, our eyes are focused. We're not sticking around, sitting there at the foot of Mount Sinai, where the law was given, maintaining that position of the law and slavery. Rather, we are looking to Christ. Wow, I'm way behind. So let me uh, pick this up a little bit. 
So notice that the one who bears the children of slavery is also in slavery herself. That's in verse 25. It says, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. That's really important because if she is in slavery herself, of course she's going to give, um, give birth to children who are also in slavery. And that's an expression of how the Judaizers are actually um, doing things and disrupting things in the Galatian churches. These Judaizers are coming in and can only give birth to more slaves because they themselves are slaves. Uh, Then notice that Paul quotes this passage in verse 27 from uh, Isaiah. Verse 27, he picks up, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now this comes from Isaiah 54, 1. And in the context there, it's talking to the Babylonian exiles who are returning and exhorting them to live fruitful and faithful lives. You've been desolate up until now. Rejoice. Now what you do is you live your life for God, the God who has freed you. And, he, and Paul is then expressing this as uh, he's, he's applying it to Sarah. In, and we get this wonderful spiritual application as a result. God does not see impossibilities like we do. For example, a return from exile. Or an elderly great-great-grandma having a, a child. He doesn't see those impossibilities. In his timing, they work. Because he's God and we're not. Right? That's what is being expressed in this wonderful passage. We must rejoice in his timing and in his display of his glorious power and then live fruitful and faithful lives as a result. This changes because we, like Isaac, are children of the promise and not of the flesh, not of the law. Verse 29 then talks about this as he says, uh, but at that, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. So here we have Ishmael persecuting Isaac, which leads to Ishmael and Hagar being uh, thrown out, right? Paul says that this persecution occurs now also, in that those who are of the flesh do the same to those who are in the Spirit today, in his day, and then also throughout the Christian age. Notice that this is an equation of being in the Spirit with being in the promise. That's a key thing too. The Spirit and the promise, those who are in the Spirit are in the promise, and those who are in the promise are in the Spirit. Do you see that? how that comes out of that verse? God supernaturally conceives a new life in those who were formerly merely dead, just as He supernaturally made Sarah conceive in a womb which had been formerly dead. I mean, think about it. 90 years old, for 90 years she had proven that that womb was dead. But God (laughs) disproves it for His purposes, for His glory. And so the instruction comes in verse 30. And what's interesting too is that this verse, as we read in Genesis 21, verse 12, I believe it was, when Sarah actually says it, is applied differently once again by Paul. He says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. And it's Sarah saying that to Abraham. Get rid of her. She and her, her son need to get out of here because she, her son will never be an heir with my son. And so what Paul is expressing here in kind of misquoting the verse, it's a loose quotation. He's, though Sarah was talking about the physical situation, Paul now applies to the spiritual situation. 
Paul takes the words and expresses the truth which is spiritual. The son of the bondwoman will remain in bondage while the son of the free woman will be an heir of the promise. Though the words of Sarah led to Hagar and Ishmael being turned out into the harsh world with very little to sustain them, the greater spiritual meaning is found in the fact that a more harsh end comes to the one who is of the flesh rather than of the promise, a life of slavery culminating in eternal hell. After all, compare Christ's statements here. Matthew twenty five forty one. he says, to those who never clothed or fed or gave a drink to him, right? He says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The KJV says, they'll be cast out. And then he says in John six thirty seven. meanwhile, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So he casts out one and keeps the other. Who do we want to be? Do we want to be the children of the, the slaves, those who are told, depart from me? Or do we want to be children of the promise, whom he will never cast out? That's what comes up right here. And so it raises the ante, so to speak, as we get to, to verse 31. Paul, uh, he says, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. And once again, as I said, twice he calls them brothers here, just like he did in 4 verse 12, when Adam talked about how the, the uh, uh, he's, he's almost repairing the relationship. He's, he's pointing out, hey, you're still my brother. Fix your problems here. Come back to the truth. He's doing the same here. And he expresses to, to them the truth, the spiritual truth, that they need to learn from the physical lesson. He says, we are not children of the bondwoman. We are children of the free woman. Those who are called of God are not children of the free woman with all of its horrible implications, but rather we are children of the free woman with all of its endless joys and benefits. And so everything comes to a crescendo in chapter 5, verse 1, which does need to be attached to this section of Scripture as he says, it is for freedom then that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ sets us free because his goal is freedom for those whom he sets free. I know that sounds very repetitive, but it's on purpose. Christ sets free because his goal is freedom for those whom he frees. All, are set, all of us are set free from the bondage to sin. All of us are set free from the bondage to guilt. All of us are set free from the bondage to the laws and innumerable rules and regulations. All are set free to do what is right through good will to God and love of Him rather than out of compulsion as the law demands. And the command to keep standing firm is therefore about realizing the unique and graceful position of having been called of God from slavery to freedom and to never relinquish that wonderful fact in heart, soul, mind, or strength. Instead, we bend every sinew, we flex every muscle in order to stand firm, to maintain a focus upon the one who has set us free for the purposes of freedom. A freedom which does what is right out of love rather than out of the pitiful state of compulsion. And I think that's the point that Paul is trying to express here. And I actually did a pretty good job of summing that up a little faster there in the last few verses. So there is time for discussion. And I hope that this actually comes up in your discussion and that you um, glory in the fact that we are children of the free woman rather than children of the bond woman. And what that means to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's pray and then we'll break up into our discussion groups.
Dear Father, we thank You so much for being our Father, for setting us apart for Your holy purpose. And we thank You and praise You that You do things in Your time according to Your purposes and to Your glory. And we ask, Lord, that we would see it better each and every day, that the physical things that occur in this world, which sometimes seem so discouraging and horrible, are things which rather bring about Your glory and display Your power and Your goodness and Your control over time, Your control over nations, Your control over all things. May we glory in that. May we rest easy in that. May all of our anxiety cease and instead our hearts be tuned to You and help us to stand firm in the promise that You have given to us. The promise that not only that we have been freed, but that we will remain free because you will certainly not cast us out. Lord, help us to glory in that. And to you be all the praise and glory and grace for eternity, from now and forever. Amen.